John chapter 10 is all about sheep and shepherds. And recently, the church has made this passage all about our modern-day context. But what if John 10 isn't speaking to the 21st century at all? What if Jesus was just describing his ministry within the religious context of his day? Well, that type of reading might cause us to rethink this entire passage. Welcome to episode 15, The Good Shepherd. This is Greg Hall, and let me just start this episode by thanking you for listening. So, thank you. (laughs) And while the podcast is still relatively new, I am noticing that the number of unique listeners and downloads continue to climb each week. And I'd also appreciate one of the three R's, either a rating, a review, or your recommendation to just one of those 1 billion English speakers out there who are not yet listening. I'm recording this episode in mid-September of 2021, and we're in the middle of our first good rain in quite a while here in the Pacific Northwest. It's been a really dry summer up here. And I can't wait for all those brown spots in my lawn, you know, the ones for the sprinklers don't quite reach, to green up again. We have a lot of grass at our house, and it's difficult to keep all the grass green throughout the entire summer. So about halfway through, I usually just give up on certain parts of it. But when things are well watered, our backyard especially has a nice green pasture feel. And come to think of it, if we wanted to, Lisa and I could probably raise sheep. But let's be honest, for the sake of the sheep, we don't. (laughs) I mean, most of the time, we struggle to keep our current flock, too many schnauzers, alive. I can't imagine what it would be like to take care of a whole flock of sheep. But actually, that isn't entirely true. Because in John chapter 10, our chapter for today, Jesus actually gives us some indication as to what it is that a good shepherd does for his flock. Within John chapter 10, there is what is often called the Good Shepherd Discourse. It's usually interpreted in two parts, verses 1 through 6 being the first part, 7 through 18 the second part, and then there's some remnants of the conversation that exists down in verses 24 through 30. We'll look at some of those verses today, but we're going to look at all of the context of it. And as I suggested in the opening, the way this passage is read oftentimes in our modern day setting is to pull it into our context and try and make it speak directly to what's going on today in the 21st century. And it's this type of interpretation that didn't start with us. This has been going on for generations. In fact, a lot of people go back to the early church fathers and suggest that they were really the first ones to try and bring scripture into their modern context. One example of this is the church father, Augustine. And before we talk about Augustine too much, I've got to actually do a bit of pronunciation work because for years I didn't know that there was an Augustine, but I was well familiar with somebody named Augustine. When I was in high school, I read through a book called The Confessions of St. Augustine, But then when I got into my master's program and then further into my biblical studies with my doctorate, I ran across this character named Augustine. And honestly, like a really bad 1980s rom-com with mistaken identity as the main plot of the story, I was introduced to Augustine 
which is the exact same person that I knew earlier in my life as Augustine. This may be brand new information for you, and I run across it all the time. So I just want to take a second and speak to it. I found a great article by David Horner from the Talbot Department of Philosophy at Biola University, and he's titled it, Whether Augustine's Name Should Be Pronounced Augustine or Augustine. So it's highly appropriate for this conversation, and we're not going to go into great detail, but let me just read a little bit from uh, Horner's article here. Augustine's Latin name is properly pronounced Augustinus, with the accent on the penultimate syllable. The pronunciation of Augustine preserves that accent pattern, and when the final syllable is dropped from the Latin, to bring it into English, he says, Augustine retains the accent on the penultimate rather than retchingly shifting it to the front of the word, as in the case of Augustine. In this way, Augustine is closer to the original pronunciation pattern, and it constitutes a more natural and appropriate pronunciation. And he says, for this reason, the Oxford Encyclopedic English Dictionary which is recognized universally as authoritative in things most fine and fitting, (laughs) list Augustine as the single recommended pronunciation. So that from Horner's article, whether Augustine's name should be pronounced Augustine or Augustine. But let's get back on track. (laughs) Because it was Augustine who, maybe as a church father, was one of the first people to try and bring John chapter 10 into his context instead of reading it in its original context. I found an article by Wright entitled Hearing the Shepherd's Voice. It's about John chapter 10, and it's specifically about the Good Shepherd discourse and Augustine's figural reading of that discourse. It's out of the Journal of Theological Interpretation, volume 6. And Wright says that Augustine provides a lot of interpretation of the Good Shepherd Discourse. And he comments that Augustine's interpretation of the figurative language and pastoral images in this chapter is related to ways in which he positions his own audience with respect to the gospel's presentation. Wright continues, According to Augustine, Jesus addresses the Pharisees in his day in John 10, 1-18, But he also speaks to Augustine's contemporary audience. While Jesus spoke these words on account of the Pharisees originally, he says, Augustine states that in the same words, Jesus gave us a healthy admonition if we pay attention. For Augustine positions his interpreting audience and their situation to imitate the activity of the individuals in the gospel. So like one example, Wright gives. When Augustine arrives at the statement in John 10:6, where it says the Pharisees did not understand Jesus's figurative speech, what Augustine does is he aligns himself and his audience with the Pharisees in the gospel narrative. Both the gospel Pharisees and Augustine's audience are in the same position of not readily understanding Jesus's figurative speech. With Augustine's interpretation, he brings his audience and aligns them because they don't understand what Jesus is saying with the Pharisees. And that type of interpretation is going to have some consequences because you don't want to be aligned with the Pharisees if you're a believer. In fact, the original context suggests that true believers 
are not aligned with the Pharisees. Bringing this passage into a more modern context like Augustine does and like thousands of people have since might just be taking it in completely the wrong direction. Perhaps the biggest key to understanding what Jesus was saying is to take his words back into a more ancient context, the one of the Old Testament, and then see what it means in the Old Testament context before we bring it into Jesus's context. And then only after we understand it in that context, then see if we can apply it somehow to the context in which we find ourselves today. So let's just spend a a little bit of time. Here in John chapter 10, we've got a lot of sheep and shepherd language. And interestingly enough, if you go back into the Old Testament, this is a theme that Jesus riffs on. He, He brings it from the Old Testament into his context. And Jesus's audience would have readily recognized that. There are many Old Testament images of God as the shepherd of Israel. You can go to passages like Genesis 48, 15, 49, 24, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? Psalm 28, 9, Psalm 77, 20, 78, 71. It's in Isaiah 40, 11, Ezekiel 34, 11 through 31. All of these passages present God as the shepherd of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And there are other passages that present Israel as his flock. You can go to passages like Psalm 74, 1, which says, O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Psalm 78, 52, 79, 13, 100, verse 3 are all other examples of Israel being presented as God's flock. But that's not even the extent of the metaphor in the Old Testament. You've got God as the shepherd, Israel as the flock, but you've also got this idea of abusive or unfaithful religious leaders as the destroyers of his flock. In the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, it begins this way, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 34 begins this way, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. The Old Testament imagery of God being the shepherd and Israel being his flock and false shepherds coming in to kill and destroy and to steal from God's flock is readily available imagery coming out of the Old Testament. And so when Jesus started using these terms, this terminology that we find in John chapter 10, he wasn't making this up. He was pulling directly from his audience's history. And so we might consider more than just the Old Testament. We might even consider the other Gospels, the Synoptics, because the sheep and shepherd theme runs throughout the Synoptics as well. You can go to passages like Mark 6, 34, which is also kind of repeated in Matthew 9, 36, where the people are described 
as distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And in Mark 14, 27, uh, duplicated again in Matthew 26, 31, Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7, and he said, You will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Matthew 7.15 talks of false shepherds in sheep's clothing. Matthew 10.6, Jesus sends disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10.16 and Luke 10.3 talk about the disciples being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Matthew 18, 12 through 14, also again in Luke 15, 3 through 7, we have the parable of the lost sheep. And in Luke 12, 32, Jesus says this, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So as modern day readers, let's just acknowledge that this passage wasn't written into our context today. I mean, the way we raise sheep today and the way we think about sheep today is completely different than the way Jesus was speaking about sheep and shepherds. It had an Old Testament context. It had a New Testament gospel context. And let's learn to read this passage within that context first and not worry about what it might mean to us until later. So I said earlier that this discourse is often regarded as being in two different parts, and that's because the first five or six verses seem to talk about one situation, and then we get into verse seven, and it seems like Jesus shifts his attention or his perspective a little bit and presents, along similar terms, another concept. And the first six verses go like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. And then verse 6, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. And that kind of ends the first section of the Good Shepherd Discourse. The second section starts in verse 7, and Jesus said to them again. So it's, it's kind of like they didn't understand this first part, so Jesus is going to reframe it a little bit and try it again. And here's what Jesus comes up with in his reframe. Verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and is not the shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand. He's not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, 
and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. It continues on, but this is kind of the reframe of how Jesus approaches his audience. I'd like to just break in and take a step back from the text for a second and just ask the question, what was the context of Jesus's ministry when he showed up here on earth? The picture that the temple was supposed to give had been completely distorted. People on earth were supposed to be able to go to the temple, look at the ministry that was happening there, and see the God of the universe reflected through that ministry. When Jesus showed up on earth, that ministry was completely distorted. We see that in John chapter 2. He goes to the temple, and it's not functioning at all like it's supposed to. So early on in John's gospel, what we're encouraged to do is see Jesus's ministry as serving to accomplish two things. First, Jesus spent a lot of time identifying the corrupt nature of the existing temple ministry, and he tried to expose its leaders as frauds. He sends that message out to as many people as possible. The second thing Jesus is doing in his ministry is identifying the remnant believers, those who had come to an authentic faith in God. And he's calling these away from the corrupt temple ministry. Jesus predicts the doom of the temple ministry and calls faithful remnant believers away from that ministry into something new that he's creating. It's a new flock of people. He's dividing people in and around Israel into largely two groups. He's identifying them as remnant believers and non-remnant unbelievers. Because up till this point, there's only been one sheep pen for God's people. The temple ministry is how God protected his sheep from the influences of the world. It was supposed to be within those confines that true believers found the safety and refuge of God, their shepherd. But what happens if the sheep pen is overrun with thieves and robbers and hired hands who are allowing the wolves into the mix? Well, at some point, a true shepherd needs to show up to clean up all the mess. So let's interact with the text just a little bit and sort out what Jesus might be saying. First of all, there is some modern confusion about the metaphors, the the sheep pens, because in verse 2, the shepherd is let in to the sheep pen by a doorkeeper, and he enters by the door. Jesus identifies himself as that shepherd of the sheep, and he is the one entering through the door. But then down in verse 7, Jesus identifies himself as the door that the sheep must enter through for safety. And this has caused some confusion for many people. One example of this is in the IVP Bible Background Commentary for the New Testament. The author Keener says this, Sheep were led in and out of the sheepfold to and from pasture. Several scholars have cited a modern example of shepherds sleeping across the gateway to serve both as shepherd and door, but Jesus probably alternates between images simply because he fulfills more than one role. 
like God in the Old Testament, he is Israel's shepherd. But he is also the way to the Father. So that's an example of Keener taking these problems of mixed metaphors and trying to come to some conclusion as to how we should be reading this today. And I don't terribly disagree with Keener. Obviously, Jesus does fulfill more than one role. He is Israel's shepherd, and he is also the way to the Father. But I think in stating it the way Keener and many others have stated it, by simplifying it, I think we're losing some distinctiveness that Jesus had with his original audience. In the first century Israel, there were actually two different types of sheep pens. There was one that was close to town and one that was out in the wilderness. And if we understand Jesus as speaking to that context, it could be that he is the shepherd let in by a door in the first sheep pen context. And then as he gets out to pasture, he becomes the door in a second type of sheep pen that may just solve all of our problems. And the Bible Knowledge Commentary does a great job of outlining the specifics of these two different sheep pens. And the author Blum, for this particular section of the commentary, says this, verses 1 through 5 of John 10, describe a morning shepherding scene, where a shepherd enters through a gate into a walled enclosure which has several flocks in one sheep pen. The enclosure with stone walls is guarded at night by a doorkeeper to prevent thieves and beasts of prey from entering. Anyone who would climb the wall would do it for no good purpose. He says, by contrast, the shepherd has the right to enter the sheep pen. The watchman opens the gate and the shepherd comes in to call his own sheep out by name, out from the other flocks that are also in the pen together with him. As sheep hear the sound of their owner's familiar voice, they would go to him, and he leads them out of the pen until his flock is formed. Then he goes out towards the fields with the sheep following him. Breaking away from Blum just for a second, I've heard it described this way. This first sheep pen that Jesus is describing is likely one close to a town, because oftentimes the shepherds would need to go into the town for supplies. They would need a place to leave their flock while they went into town and did their shopping. So they had these pens that were very large that often included different flocks, all mixed together. But it's interesting, when a shepherd comes to the door, from the midst of the crowd, he is able to go through and pick his sheep out of the larger crowd, leaving some behind and taking some with him. Verse 4, when he puts forth all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And it's interesting, at the end of the description of this first sheep pen, the commentary that John the author adds to Jesus' words are this in verse 6. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Now let's step away from the way we've read that before. What is John the author saying? He's explaining the metaphor within Jesus's context. Jesus the shepherd is coming to the first sheep pen and he's going to the temple context of that first sheep pen and he's speaking to all the sheep within the pen. And some of the sheep are not understanding what he says to them because they are not 
his sheep. Jesus even says as much later in the same chapter, down in verse 24, people were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, let's talk in metaphor terms. If the people talking to Jesus were already believers, already sheep of the father's flock, and the shepherd of the sheep was talking to them, they would recognize him for who he is. But listen to what Jesus says to this group of people. Jesus answered them, verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe. Why? Because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. He's following up on the metaphors from earlier. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus is speaking to the first sheep pen metaphor, and he's talking to sheep that are not of his fold. They don't recognize his voice. And if that's the context of the first sheep pen, then the question becomes, what is Jesus talking about in verse 7? Because remember, he describes what he's doing then, trying to draw his sheep out of the first sheep pen. But the people he's talking to don't understand him. They're not his sheep. So Jesus describes the first sheep pen in the first six verses, but he's talking to people that are not a part of his flock. So let's get back to our commentary's comments and what Blum says about the second part of the discourse. For verses seven through nine, Blum says this, Jesus then developed the shepherd sheep figure of speech in another way, After a shepherd's flock has been separated from the other sheep, that's the first sheep pen, he takes them out to pasture. Near the pasture is an enclosure for the sheep. The shepherd takes his place in the doorway or entrance and functions as a door or a gate. The sheep can go out to the pasture in front of the enclosure, or if afraid, they can retreat into the security of the enclosure. The spiritual meaning is that Jesus is the only gate by which people can enter into God's provision for them. And I would suggest that in the use of the metaphor, the second sheep pen is God's new flock. Jesus is bringing the faithful remnant out of the first sheep pen, separating them from the temple ministry, which will be destroyed and done away with. And Jesus is starting a new flock. And he's using a new sheep pen, and he will be the doorkeeper. So Jesus is describing what's happening in his context, not ours. John 10 is specific to those circumstances and what's happening in Jesus's ministry here on earth. The shepherd has come to earth in the form of a man. He entered one sheep pen and found it in disarray. He's going to bring an end to the use of that pen, but before he does, He calls his own sheep out of it, and he leads them out to pasture where he will create another type of enclosure to protect them. That's the solution to the confusion about the metaphors in John 10. There are two sheep pens. In the first one, Jesus is the shepherd who comes to the temple ministry and finds it run by thieves and robbers. And the second sheep pen describes the environment that Jesus is creating for true believers, and he invites them to follow him.
Let's go down to verse 16 and read through verse 21 and see how Jesus's words and John's commentary play out here at the end of the Good Shepherd Discourse. Jesus says in verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Let me just break in real quick. That's often described as the Gentile inclusion within the family of God. But let's look at exactly how Jesus said it. He said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. He doesn't say, I will have other sheep. Jesus is talking about his context, and he is saying that when he is on earth, there are people of true faith that are not attached to that first sheep pen of the temple ministry. They already exist, and he must bring them also. They will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Have we seen this play out earlier in John's gospel? That's a great question. And yes, we have. We just need to go back to John chapter 4, where Jesus went to a distant land. (laughs) It was just north of Judea, a place called Samaria. And he found a woman of true faith, not attached to this temple. That's what the whole discussion was about. We worship here on this mountain. You guys worship there on that mountain. And Jesus' comment back to her is, It's not about mountains anymore. We're getting rid of the first sheep pen. And Jesus says to her, I'm inviting you to the second half of my Good Shepherd discourse. It's a whole new sheep pen, and you can come in, just enter through me. So Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. And then John steps in with commentary. Now, if it's going to be consistent with what John has been doing throughout his gospel, we would expect that his commentary is now going to display in real time what these two metaphors look like. Let's see what he says. Verse 19, a division occurred again amongst the Jews because of these words. You've got Jesus in the first sheep pen talking to the sheep, and a division is occurring among the sheep. That makes sense because there's two flocks, (laughs) some of his sheep and some not. Verse 20, many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? And let me just point out that my theory is these are not people of God's flock. (laughs) If they're listening to the shepherd's voice and they're not recognizing it, they're not belonging to God's flock. But you would expect John, the author, to also include a response from God's flock if this is really him describing how these metaphors are playing out in real time. And we find that in the very next verse. Because verse 21 says, Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And so you've got Jesus, the good shepherd, not just opening the eyes of the blind, but also inviting those who have ears that can hear him and inviting them away from the temple ministry of his day. It would soon disappear, and they needed to be able to find shelter in a safe place with a good shepherd. So you you might ask, where is that second sheep pen that Jesus has for the flock that he's calling away from the temple ministry? And John answers that question at the end of chapter 10. 
Jesus has continued his discussion with the Jews there at the temple long enough for them to pick up stones and to throw at him. And it says in verse 39, therefore, they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp. And he's going to leave. And let's just see where Jesus goes. Verse 40. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he was staying there. Now listen what happens. He's called his sheep out of the first sheep pen. And now he's gone out to pasture. He's out near the Jordan, where John the Baptist was first baptizing early in the gospel accounts. And he stayed there. And what would you expect from a metaphorical standpoint, talking about the two sheep pens and a good shepherd gathering a new flock? He's going to go out to pasture, and he's going to start to gather his flock together and invite them into the new sheep pen. And in verse 41, what we see is people coming to Jesus and saying about him that everything John the Baptist said about this man is true. And the chapter concludes with this statement. Many believed in him there. And in our context, we're tempted to see that as a new faith. But if the metaphors that Jesus has been describing and that John is supporting with the narrative of his gospel are true— These are already people of faith, and they're recognizing Jesus as the fulfillment of that promised Messiah in which they already believed. So the question that remains is, how should we apply this understanding of Jesus's words into our context? And I would just suggest that the second sheep pen that Jesus describes is the one that still exists today. True believers enter and exit its safety through Jesus, the good shepherd. And it should never be a surprise to us that thieves and robbers will continually try to pose as shepherds of that flock. So let's not get discouraged when we see examples of such. Let's focus our attention on the true shepherd, on what he says, and let's learn to follow his voice as best we can. Well, that's all I've got for today, but that's not all the work I've done on this passage. At RethinkingScripture.com, I've got a video teaching for John chapter 10 that discusses even more nuances that this passage contains. You can look for it under the Bible Studies tab. In the next episode, we'll move on into John chapter 11, where I'll suggest that Lazarus really wasn't resurrected from the dead. Thanks again for listening, and please remember to take some time this week to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.